This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. This month we explore the world of data to discover how it can be used to support development. Every year, governments, organisations and private foundations invest billions in aid projects around the world. And with all this financial activity comes a lot of data. We're looking across all the evidence in low and middle income countries. But the idea is that we provide this as a tool and then people can use the evidence and interpret it in light of their particular context. So the key ethical issues we identified are the origins of the data and how they are used. But why do data and statistics play such an important part in development studies? And can we use them to really make a difference for research, policy making and public health? Well, stay with us to explore these questions and more. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast, where we put science at the heart of global development. Today in the studio is multimedia producer Lou Del Bello, who's been investigating the world of data for development. So, Lou, first of all, what types of data are there? And can science come up with some clear description of the main data sources used in development? We can draw a first rough distinction between data collected the old way by statistical offices, for example with door-to-door surveys or going through a series of published studies to gather research information, and big data. So what exactly is big data? Big data is a relatively new and very powerful way to produce and collect information, which is made possible by information technologies like computers and mobile phones. Whenever we connect to a network, we leave an invisible path of data behind, a trace of what we do, where we are, and how we interact with others. And how do the two categories interact with each other? Is there still a need for the traditional offline data collection? Based on my reporting, I would say there is, especially in the developing world. Just think of all the people who don't have an internet connection or a mobile phone. It is true that mobiles are now widespread, but many people use them just every now and then on a pay-as-you-go SIM card, so not a lot of data. Mm -hmm. Uh, But do statistical offices in the developing world have the resources needed to really investigate on the ground with those traditional surveys? Very often they don't. That's why the two worlds have to cooperate to achieve results. So, for example, researchers who collect big data will need the support of a multidisciplinary team to interpret them, because they may not be aware of the social or technological context behind a certain data stream. So they really need experts that can guide them through what the data are showing or hiding. And what about researchers on the ground? Well, there is a wealth of data still buried in the archives of statistical offices or research centres, and this data could be uploaded, reorganised and made available for all. This way, analysts could use the same technology that produced big data to process offline datasets. I wanted to know more about how data can be made more accessible, and if that means that they will be more useful. So I visited Bertes Nilfeit, an evaluation specialist at the International Initiative for Impact and Evaluation, or 3IE. Um, Here I work on systematic reviews, both conducting systematic reviews and supporting um, researchers that we fund to do systematic reviews. Now, what is a systematic review? 
And what's it for? I put the question to Berthe. So a systematic review provides a comprehensive overview of all the available evidence. So that's primary studies addressing a particular question. Um, so we focus primarily on um, questions of intervention effectiveness, so also, uh, but also questions related to intervention effectiveness. Um, so we've recently had a systematic review published on looking at the effects of payment for environmental services on uh, deforestation and also social welfare um, outcomes or welfare outcomes for people. Payment for environmental services is an intervention that's um, commonly implemented to reduce deforestation. And this review was looking at across the high quality studies what do they suggest in terms of the effectiveness of this intervention? One main finding of the study was that actually we don't have a lot of high-quality studies, which so that's a quite worrying finding considering that it's an area where a lot of resources is being used. It suggests that the intervention might have some effect on reducing deforestation, but it's a very small effect. Systematic reviews are useful. They can really provide an insight on the effectiveness of policies for development. But they can be very slow to produce. Which I imagine may be a problem when it comes to keeping them updated with new studies. True, but Berthe told me that 3IE team has taken a step forward towards making reviews more flexible and easy to use. They mapped out the landscape of available studies. An evidence gap map is a thematic collection looking across either a sector or a subsector. And what the evidence gap map does is to provide an overview of all the available systematic reviews in that particular area. Because it provides less in-depth analysis than a systematic review, we can do it quicker and it provides a broad overview of all the available studies in that sector. And the idea is that it helps both researchers, um, research commissioners and policymakers identify the evidence addressing the issue they're interested in relatively quickly. So, Lou, the evidence gap maps are making the landscape of research quicker to analyse, but is that enough to really make it accessible? Well, here's where the IT comes in. The data are organised in an interactive platform that shows at a glance where there's a lack of studies. We use visualisation to make the evidence more accessible. They are presented um, using a matrix. We have um, programmes on on the one side and then a list of the outcomes on, on the other side. The matrix contains bubbles and the size of the bubble indicates the number of studies that are available in a particular area. So the idea is that our users can click on the bubbles to then get through to summaries of the systematic reviews. Well, the more you look at the issue of data analysis for development, the more you realise it's never an exact science. Berthe pointed out some of the limitations of the evidence gap maps. Primarily, we're conducting evidence gap maps that look at the effects of an intervention. So that means that we don't address questions of implementation, for instance. 
we provide relatively limited analysis so it doesn't provide policy recommendations it's quite a, a macro picture so it doesn't look at context for instance in detail because we're looking across all the evidence in low and middle income countries but the idea is that we provide this as a tool and then people can depending on their context use the evidence that we've put together um, and interpret it in light of their particular context. And that was Lou Del Bello talking to Berta Sneltzweit of the International Initiative for Impact and Evaluation about the challenges and promises of a fascinating new tool, Evidence Gap Maps. Stay with us to learn more about how data can help development. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Now, when it comes to big data, one of the main challenges is privacy. After all, big data can give away much about people's behaviour, about their movements and what they look up on the internet. Ultimately, all these clues may lead to someone's identity or possibly exposing their secrets. However, scientists are reluctant to give up on a tool that can prove invaluable for research in various fields, including epidemiology. Public health is a particularly sensitive area and obviously whoever uses the data has to be really mindful of the need to protect people's identity. A recent report looks at the challenges of big data in public health. Reporter France Ewan investigated and sent us this report. Epidemiology is a science of patterns. It studies how diseases spread among the population, an elusive process that has been challenging scientists for centuries. Now, some are trying to make sense of the puzzle pieces, looking at the dynamics of the World Wide Web. By tracking what people do, how they behave and what they say on the internet and filtering the stream of data by health-related keywords, researchers are hoping to spot patterns previously invisible to the human eye. But the notion of digital disease detection, however, doesn't come without challenges. I sat down with Dr. Effie Vajena, a senior research fellow at the Institute of Biomedical Ethics at the University of Zurich and co-author of the report on ethical challenges of big data in public health, to discuss what the key issues are. So the key ethical issues we identified are the origins of the data and how they are used, in particular whether people who provided the data that we're using um, are aware of the uses. And the other thing that has come up is that in digital disease detection, um, again, it's an area that is in its early stages of development. And so the science behind it is still evolving. And in a sense, what that means is um, there might be cases where we're not entirely sure about the accuracy of the results or of our methodology. Um, which, of course, you know, creates an ethical question in terms of um, what, how we can use the results that we've come up with. The internet is well known for its loopholes in terms of security and privacy. In public health research especially, it is important that the individual's right to privacy is not breached. Researchers in digital disease detection have to be very careful. In terms of, of privacy um, and, you know, origin of data, um, imagine, for example, that if we're using this data that are available um, in social media, 
do we know that users who those who generated the data the users are aware of the uses and is it ethically acceptable to use the data for disease detection for example eventually um, imagine that we might be identifying um, an infectious disease that um, in a community or in a region on the basis of data that people generated but they were not aware that we use it for that purpose um, and the other thing that comes in there is we've been having a debate in big data about what is public and what is private for the digital disease detection to be accurate and successful, it has to fight underlying ethical issues. The correct evaluation of the data is crucial to avoid misleading information which can harm entire populations. There are consequences on individuals and there are often consequences on communities and regions. So we have to be really careful that this is done um, as well, you know, it's done really well because of those kinds of consequences to, to people. And the further, I guess, um, uh, layer here uh, that um, also we discuss in the paper is uh, doing this public health activity um, well is something that builds people's trust on, on pu in public health. And that's something we absolutely need in order to develop, um, to, to actually move on to, to actions in, in public health and develop the systems further. However, digital disease detection doesn't just face ethical challenges, but also technical ones. These range from developing algorithms to filtering the right data. Another technical problem issue is where we're getting the data from in terms of you know the, the regional diversity. We're talking global disease detection. Are we getting the um, right amount of data from everywhere or uh, primarily from regions where we have more uses of social media, for example, or more uses of or higher internet penetration? Um, the other thing is where do we have access to all the data that we could use? And I would say this is also a technical matter, um, not simply an ethical matter. A lot of the social media data belong to companies. Um, are they easily accessible to all researchers? No. Um, how can we, you know, that, that could, if we were, if they were accessible to all, we could... Um, you know, develop our algorithms a lot better, and we could have, of course, um, better um, better volume in order to use them for the disease detection. The trend of sharing information online has a big impact on how digital disease detection operates. Data is collected through a variety of channels, but there is one essential to research. It is social media, um, but you'd see one of the co-authors of this paper has used Wikipedia searches. So used um, data from um, Wikipedia uh, to look at influenza, um, at, at flu, in the, particular in the US, and the data that they could get were um, absolutely, you know, comparing with other data sets were actually very well, very good. So. The, we get really creative with what we can use, but social media seems to be the first, um, the, the main kind of source. The other thing with the Ebola um, epi um, outbreak and epidemic that was eventually used um, was cell phone data. That's a different source altogether. Beyond any doubt, digital disease detection is going to play a big part on monitoring diseases and analyzing their geographical outbreaks. 
It's still early days for this new form of disease detection, but the future for it can be bright if certain conditions are met. If we want to see this flourishing and really, if we wanted to harness the potential of what's in the big data for public health, we really need to do that in, um, within a robust ethical framework. Um, otherwise, you know, we think we can go, there could be serious pitfalls and, and prevent us from um, achieving what we could. So we need to make sure that we do, um, uh, we understand the conditions maybe that data are coming with, that we are um, mindful of privacy um, issues, um, that we are transparent about how the data, where they're coming from, how we're using them, um, all of those things that we monitor closely, all of those things I think will be um, uh, really of tremendous importance if we want to do this well. That was France Ewan talking to Effie Viena about the challenges of big data in public health. Stay with us to discover how data can be used to track aid projects and to improve the way money is spent to enhance people's lives. That's all coming later in the podcast. This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Now, we've seen examples of how data can support better research and inform policymaking, as well as what the challenges are that come with their use in epidemiology and public health. But financial aid is still at the heart of global development, and knowing whether the money spent is making an impact or not is crucial to plan more effective policies in the future. Better data can help with that too, providing the information is consistent, accurate and presented in a user-friendly way. Reporter Anand Jagatia has been learning more and sent us this interview. Every year, governments, organisations and private foundations invest billions in aid projects around the world, and with all this financial activity comes a lot of data. This data can be extremely useful. Keeping track of who has funded how much to what projects is no mean feat, and yet it's vital if governments, citizens and investors want to understand the impacts of aid and improve its effectiveness. An increasingly important aspect of all this is being able to visualise precisely where geographically aid projects are taking place. Vanessa Goaz is Field Operations Manager at Aid Data, a US data lab that works to collect and analyse open data on trillions of dollars worth of aid. I spoke to her about how geocoding, the geographical pinpointing of aid projects, is helping to make sense of all this data. For now, we're working on you know, specific countries, especially ones that have a really strong commitment to transparency and putting this data out in an open format, and also working with particular development organizations um, like the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank, who also want to make sure all of their data is open, accessible, and transparent, and uh, available in a geospatial way. Aid Data's geocoding work involves collaborating with governments and development agencies to determine the geographic coordinates of their aid projects. This means that the aid within a given country can be visualised on a map and allows governments to see at a glance where resources are flowing. It also allows them to spot patterns and see if certain areas are being over or underserved. Having this information is really critical for governments when they're sort of planning where to make their own investments. To be visualized on a map is actually a real game changer for them. It allows them to really understand where are the gaps and where uh, are the investments most needed. Could you give an example of that? 
Yeah, I think um, the government of Nepal, specifically the Ministry of Finance, upon seeing uh, the data set of geocoded aid projects in their country, they were really surprised to see that almost no education funding was going to one of the parts of the country that had some of the lowest uh, rates of literacy and uh, school attendance. So for them, that was something that is helping them drive policy to ask development partners and to also ask the Ministry of Education to start focusing their funds in that part of the country. Often, open financial data for aid isn't referenced at a sub-national level, so geocoding an existing data set comes with significant challenges. There are a lot of challenges um, in this, and it's really, it's not easy work, but it's, it's been really, I think, gratifying for the governments that we work with. The first is that often development partners don't actually have this data themselves and they have to go dig it up. Um, you would think that if you would ask a development partner, you know, show me all the places where your project is being implemented, that they might have that in a database somewhere. But probably nine times out of 10, that actually doesn't exist. So they have to do some work on their own end. Um, and I think that's really the primary challenge. There's other kind of secondary challenges, things like getting um, base maps. A lot of these countries have redistricted several times in the last 10 years, and these maps maybe don't exist in a free, public, or reusable way. The other is really just getting a list of all of the locations in a country. Um, many countries that we work in don't have a standard list of towns, villages, states, or districts. So getting that is a huge challenge for us. And beyond helping governments to make better decisions, geocoding also makes open data more accessible and relevant to citizens themselves. Being able to see the aid that has been invested in their own village or district rather than the country as a whole enables citizens to have a more meaningful dialogue with their governments and provides them with the evidence to hold them to account. Geocoding is a powerful way to make sure that big data remains meaningful to the governments, organisations and people that need it most. But as the open data movement continues to move forward within development, it's important that data like this is put to good use. So you have this data set, um, it's really useful and interesting, but how do you get people to use it? And how do you kind of link into the key tasks that governments and donors and development partners have to do? How can we even make it easier for people to use this data? Is it new methodologies, new tools, new types of capacity building? Because I think the development community is really familiar with this sort of cycle. You spend a lot of time collecting data and then it just sits there and nobody knows how to use it or why they would use it. We need to really make sure that the data serves an everyday purpose that they need to, to use the data for. That was Anand Jagatia speaking to Vanessa Goas at Aid Data. Well, that's all for this edition of the podcast. Join me, John Escombe, and the rest of the SciDev.net team here in London next month. As ever, remember to stay connected with us for more news and views on global development by following us on our Twitter handle, which is at SciDevNet. Until next time, bye-bye.